week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm your host, Pete Mazzetti. My guest this evening is, is Executive Director of the CIAC, Glenn Longarini. Glenn, welcome. How are you, my friend? Doing well, Pete. Great to be back on the show with you again. I know. Good to see you. Good to see you. One of these days, we're actually going to have to do this in real time, in person, rather than this virtual stuff. Uh, that sounds great. I look forward to those days and uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Pete. I'm hoping I'm hoping. So, Glenn, tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been executive director of the CIAC. Sure, Pete. Um, you know, I came on board with the CIAC uh, just about three years ago. So I'm, I'm in the middle of my third uh, year as executive director right now. Uh, prior to coming to the CIAC, uh, I served as a high school uh, principal um, within my education career. I had the opportunity to serve as uh, an administrator, not only as a principal, but as an assistant principal, athletic director, uh, and department chair. Uh, as a teacher, I was uh, fortunate to teach uh, at the elementary, middle school, and high school uh, levels, was able to coach at the uh, middle school, high school, and collegiate level as I spent uh, seven years as the uh, as an assistant baseball coach at Yale University. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. It was great time there. Had a uh, good fortune to work alongside uh, Coach John Stuper, who I, I believe is uh, still leading the, the Bulldogs right now. Uh, they had a tremendous year two years ago where uh, slated for a, a great year last year that cut short and uh, hoping that they have a chance to get out there this spring. Exactly, exactly. Now, Glenn, let's talk a little bit of, let's take a little bit of a reflection time and reflect about the fall season and how everything went. Yeah, Pete, I tell you, we, we were um, just thrilled with the way that we were uh, able to, to get the experiences for the kids uh, that we were able to provide. Uh, and then ultimately the timeframes that played out and the experiences uh, that students were were able to uh, enjoy. We, we were very proud of, of that. Um, you know, of, of course, there we weren't able to uh, to get all those four fall sports running in the capacity uh, that we would have liked where, uh, you know, football only had the opportunity to do the low to moderate risk uh, activities uh, similar to what we're seeing, you know, right now with high risk sports in the uh, in the winter that hasn't changed uh, <clears throat> at this point in Connecticut. Uh, but with the low to moderate risk sports that we had in the fall, we had over 28,000 athletes uh, compete in those activities. Uh, we had over 33,000 events when you look at games, practices uh, that took place. Uh, we did look at how many games were uh, postponed or canceled, how many teams had a quarantine. Uh, so how did COVID you know, impact us? Uh, we did relatively well from a standpoint of transmission from uh, school-based, education-based athletics. We only had uh, seven cases that were traced back to school athletics as being the source of transmission. So that was uh, estimated at a 0.02% um, transmission rate for education-based athletics. Um, and within our schools, we saw about 15% of our games be rescheduled. Uh, and about uh, nearly 3%, just under 3% of games get canceled in the fall. Uh, so again, I, I think the numbers would, uh, would reflect that it was uh, a very successful fall season. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, how do they, how do they classify low risk, media, immediate risk, and high risk sports? 
Yeah, the classifications come primarily from the National Federation of High Schools. Uh, the National Federation of High Schools established the categories back in May when they issued their return to play guidance. Uh, the NFHS gathered most of those categories from work that was done by the U.S. Olympic Paralympic Committee. Uh, for the sports that were not identified by the Olympic Committee, those were uh, the, the sports that the NFHS uh, took on their own to classify. Back in May, when those classifications were issued, much of the work from the NFHS aligned with the same standards that came out uh, from the NCAA. So we, we did see alignment from this back in May with um, you know, the international group from the Olympic side and then from the governing bodies at the collegiate and the high school level with the NCAA and the NFHS. The classifications are really related to um, exposure to respiratory droplets is the primary uh, classification there. So in your high risk sports, uh, sports like football, like wrestling, uh, where you, you do have um, significant uh, contact within a six foot um, uh, radius for more than 15 minutes throughout the course of the of the game or through practice scenarios. Uh, that's where the um, the high risk category comes from, and then the moderate risk and low risk is reduced uh, based on exposure. Now, what is the NFHS? The NFHS is the National Federation of High Schools. That is the state governing, um, the national governing body for state associations. So each state um, and their state athletic association is a member of the National Federation of High Schools. In addition to uh, governing athletics, so um, the, the rules that we use for high school sports come out of uh, the National Federation, the guidelines and for regulations come out of the National Federation. Uh, and in addition to sports, they also provide guidance and regulations for uh, student activities. So they have um, guidelines for uh, activities like uh, marching band, um, for uh, debate club, um, you know, and, and things like that. So it's, it's high school um, activities and athletics. Absolutely, absolutely. So how, how is the, how, how are things been going since the start of the, the start of the pandemic to where we are now? You know, we're, we're starting, we, we are learning a lot more as, as we go through this of, um, you know, how uh, the virus um, contributes to spread from uh, an athletic standpoint. And, you know, I, I do think a, a bit of a misconception out there that we often hear is that there's no spread through sports. Right. Um, we know that there is spread through sports. What we're seeing relatively low numbers with through uh, through the science and the the data tracking is that there's there's limited or low spread um, from team A to team B within a game or a sport experience. We are seeing spread um, intra team uh, around the sport, and and you see that uh, you know on a day just within our state. I mean, just think about how many times. Uh, a UConn basketball game has been uh, postponed or changed this year, right? right. So, uh, and, and, and because of COVID exposures to various teams. So, you know, we do know that it exists within sport, but it appears to primarily exist within the team. So, um, you know, our mitigating strategies in the fall really focused on trying to address those issues uh, off the field. And uh, what do you do when you're on the sideline? How do you handle locker room situations? What do you do in terms of sanitation? How do you handle transportation to and from uh, events? How do you handle um, 
the the attendance at games, right? Because uh, the the community uh, spread is an important piece of uh, of that equation as well. So um, we're learning a lot more about this as as we move forward. But you know, we, we have to accept that there are challenges to playing sports in a pandemic. Um, we do know in Connecticut in the fall, while CIAC's numbers were very good, uh, we do know that in general from sport experiences, youth sport, club sports, and, and otherwise, um, that we did have 17 school closures directly related uh, to school sports. We know there were um, uh, about, you know, somewhere in the high 20s, 27, 28, 29 outbreaks that were directly uh, attributed to sports. We know that there were about 238 teachers that were quarantined um, due to sport exposure. And we know that there were about 1,500 student athletes um, at the from the uh, K to 12 level that were quarantined due to sports. So uh, it has uh, been an impact in, in the sport world and that has impacted the educational setting. So we just need to be aware of that and, and take the proper precautions to mitigate those risks. Now let's talk about the winter plan with what's going on with sports and the COVID. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, you know, our, our planning really never stops, whether we're uh, we're working on the winter plan or we're talking about the uh, the, the spring plan. You know, it's in, it's in a constant state of um, of development and work right now uh, through our collaboration with the uh, State Department of Health, with the governor's office and uh, great work from the Connecticut State Medical Society uh, Sports Medicine Committee. Uh, we were able to uh, approve a plan and get moving with low to moderate risk sports. Uh, so for us, that has uh, boys and girls basketball, uh, gymnastics, boys swimming, um, uh, up and running with their games and events right now. Uh, indoor track, uh, we're, we're taking a little bit more of a cautious approach with where we're starting practices, but we haven't begun the, uh, the competitions or the meets yet for that. We'll be looking at the opportunity to do that uh, probably in the month of March to get some experiences uh, for those kids. But the you know the limitation around that is even in a uh, you know as a dual meet, if you will, with with teams, your track teams are are upwards of 75 to 100 kids per team. So yeah. even bringing just two teams together, uh, you you have you know 150 200 kids that that are gathering, uh, and that's not even including coaches. Um, so, you know, it, it's a limiting uh, factor there. The, the other uh, piece that um, is limiting across the state is that very few uh, schools have indoor track facilities. You know, we do have some, obviously you have the premier facility on the Floyd Little Athletic Center in New Haven, which Absolutely. is just a, a great facility. Uh, and then you have a handful of other uh, indoor facilities around the state that exist at the high school level. But most of our schools, when you talk about indoor facilities, are used in colleges and universities. Our so colleges and universities have shared with us, we don't have access to their facilities right. uh, this year. So, um, you know, we, we, we can't go to Cox Cage, uh, you know, at, at Yale and, and use that facility. We can't go to the Wesleyan Fieldhouse and use that facility. Right. Um, and, and understandably so, you know, there, there's, um, we, we understand the dynamic of bringing kids on college campuses. We've all seen, uh, the numbers on college campuses. So it, it makes good sense, but that's a limiting factor for uh, for holding those um, indoor track events right now. So hopefully, you know, as we get to, to March, the numbers are a little bit better. 
Um, maybe we could do some some smaller group things uh, indoors if we need to. But if the weather's warm enough uh, and we can get outside and reasonably do some some uh, track experiences outdoors leading into that winter season, uh, we'd love to give kids some experiences there. And I believe Haddam Killingworth High School has a field house with an indoor track as well. They do. I know uh, Haddam Killingworth has one. I believe Whitland has one. I think uh, up in uh, Westport and Staples, I believe there's one. Uh, Bethel High School, uh, I believe, has one. So, there, you know, there, there are a handful around the state. I'd say, you know, there's, there's you know, maybe a half dozen or so um, around the state. Uh, you know, but even with that, it's, again, are, are, are those communities, um, you know, willing to bring uh, large numbers of, of people from other communities in with the numbers uh, where they are right now. So, um, you know, it's it's just, again, it's one of those pieces that you have to be aware of. Um, you know, our high-risk sports right now as well, uh, the recommendation from the Department of Health is that we limit high-risk sports to uh, small group conditioning and non-contact skill uh, building through the winter season. For us, the winter season ends uh, March 28th. So, you know, essentially through the end of March, there is that limitation on high risk uh, sports right now. Uh, also with all of our low to moderate risk sports that are playing, we're wearing a mask in those activities uh, with the exception of swimmers when they're in the pool. Uh, again, makes sense. The other exception is gymnasts when they're on the apparatus. So gymnasts will wear a mask coming up to the apparatus that they're doing, then they'll take it off, perform their routine, uh, and then put the mask uh, back on. So when they are the sole uh, athlete or participant up on the, um, uh, apparatus or at the on the floor event, uh, what, whatever it may be, uh, they take the mask off to perform and then uh, and then put that mask back on. Now, what about for winter sports? What about spectators, coaches? Are they allowing people, spectators, to come to the events, or is it everything going to be done teams only? Sure. Yeah, our recommendation right now, uh, Pete, is to not allow spectators. Uh, you know, again, we, we understand that uh, certainly parents want to watch their kids play and, right. and, you know, we can understand that. But uh, again, our focus right now is let's get the kids back in action. Um, again, it, it is the activities uh, and the, uh, the environment around the event that's playing where we're seeing the transmission and the spread. Uh, so we try to we, we need to try to limit that as much as we can right now while we're seeing some of those uh, elevated numbers. So our recommendation is to not have fans. Uh, the DECD sector rules, uh, if you look at those rules that were uh, recently updated, I believe on January 19th they were updated. Um, you know, those suggest that for um, adult um, games and uh, that, that there are no fans and for youth games that it's limited to one parent. Um, per participant, so so even in that manner, it's it's relatively restricted to uh, to who can attend. And you know, at the high school level, they, there's transportation, you know, to the event. Um, you know, you, you have coaches there. Um, you know, we, we have you know certainly supervision of the kids in that venue. So um, you know, the, the parents, I think, in a lot of uh, these cases can probably watch it through live stream. Uh, you know, we have most of our games are streamed on the NFHS network. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, parents can uh, can certainly uh, log in and stream and watch that event online. I know most of our all of our hockey facilities, I believe, have the uh, the live barn cameras uh, so you can watch on uh, live barn as well. So, um, you know, th there will be ways for our parents 
to watch those games. And then, you know, as the numbers improve, districts will have the autonomy uh, to make the decision of what is right for their communities and their schools. Now, as far as the winter sports and everything going on, obviously coaches are allowed to the events. And is it just basically coaching staff, players, and that's pretty much it? And yeah, so, you know, uh, coaching staff, uh, players, medical staff, um, you know, trainers, doctors, uh, that, that may be necessary uh, at, the, uh, at the events as well. Um, and then your game day staff, you'll, you, you still need people to, you know, run the shot clocks or the, the game clocks and run the, um, you know, uh, the, the scorebooks. Uh, also, uh, athletic administration to be able to, uh, you know, assist with media, again, without having, uh, you know, fans in attendance. We want to make sure that there that there is access to to the games, and uh, so um, you know, making sure that there is some access for uh, for media to cover games uh, is important uh, piece as well. So there will still be some, you know, people at the events and uh, and at these games. But again, we we want to keep that number relatively small. And with the winter sports season, that means there's no winter championship this year. Correct. You know, we, we had a lot of discussion about that and, and the decision to cancel the winter championship really came down to uh, looking at how can we get kids the most game experience possible. Uh, you know, while we are allowing teams to come back on January 19th and, and a lot of and many schools did come back. Um, we do see the majority of our schools, um, I'd say probably a little bit more than 50% aren't coming um, back until February 1st. Okay, right. so, so we're, we're seeing a bit of a delay uh, in teams coming in. We have some that may not even come in until a little bit later than that, so the week of uh, February 8th. So, uh, and then we, we also need to account for that, um, you know, as we saw in the fall with relatively uh, good COVID numbers, better than what we have right now, uh, that 15% of our games got rescheduled. So we have to anticipate quarantines, games being, um, you know, rescheduled as well. So, you know, when you put all that into context, if we were going to have a state tournament, it puts a hard stop date on the regular season. Uh, and, and the tournament ends up in a scenario where, um, you know, you play a game and, and you could be eliminated. And it, that, that doesn't really address what we feel the most important thing is right now. And, and that's for kids to have time with their teammates, uh, to have those experiences playing as, as much as possible. So by canceling the, the state tournament and allowing the leagues to design experiences, you're able to have a tournament-like experience, but you're also able to design opportunities that keep teams playing and give them opportunities uh, if they don't win those first tournament games. Uh, so it maximizes opportunities for, uh, for teams to play, um, especially if they're coming back from uh, quarantines or different scenarios uh, within the course of the season and still give them the, the best opportunity to play the most games possible. Now, how closely do you guys work, work with the NCAA? Uh, we actually don't work with the NCAA in terms of, you know, the, the decisions of what we play or, um, you know, or the format that we use. Again, that all comes from uh, the national federations. Gotcha. Our relationship with the NCAA 
um, is more on the eligibility piece for uh, for uh, seniors who will be, uh, you know, going to college next year. So looking at um, how do transcripts uh, look right now? Uh, again, it's very different, right? You have you have schools in full distance learning. You have schools in hybrid. You have um, you know schools that have changed from uh, from doing a traditional schedule to a block schedule. Um, so you you have all different scenarios with uh, with transcripts and eligibility. So we we do communicate with the NCAA uh, on eligibility standards and to understand recruiting. Uh, periods and and how that's um, you know translating during this uh, challenging time. And obviously, you guys work pretty closely with the governor's office, correct? We do. We you know we we do uh, speak frequently with um, Paul Mounds, who's the uh, chief of staff for the uh, for the governor's office. Um, and uh, you know we do work closely with uh, with DPH as well. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate to uh, to be able to uh, get some time with uh, Commissioner uh, Gifford as we come close to deadlines, but throughout the um, the uh, the time that we work with them, uh, Tom St. Louis from the Department of Health is has been a good partner and uh, and we have continued communications uh, with him. Also, uh, DECD Commissioner Lehman. Um, has been a, a tremendous help and, uh, and and resource as well as we try to align as much as we can uh, what's happening with interscholastic athletics and youth sports across the state. Exactly. exactly. You got a very big, busy organization considering what's going on and what's going on in the state and what's going on in the world. Yeah, I, you know, education is very busy right oh, yeah. now, and uh, you know, you, you you never know what's going to happen from from day to day. Um, you know, as you said, you're, you're seeing schools that, um, you know, due to quarantine issues, don't have enough staffing and and need to go out at the same time. Uh, you know, I think our our superintendents and and principals and administrators are doing a tremendous job trying to get kids uh, in class as much as we can. Um, I'd say our, our teachers uh, have just been incredible. Um, you know, you think of the challenges that they have, not only in planning what they would traditionally plan for those kids who are in the classroom with them, but planning on top of that, uh, you know, these distance learning experiences that uh, they, they've never had to do before, right? And, uh, and and they're doing this on a daily basis now, engaging kids uh, online when, it, when it's not easy. And, uh, you know, kids have varying levels of access uh, so, um, you know, the, the educational system, I think, is is taxed uh, as much as any system uh, right now. But uh, again, we, we have great teachers, great administrators who are uh, working their way through this. And, uh, and, and again, you know, our coaches are doing a tremendous job as well. Uh, you, you have to be concerned of the social, emotional, mental health issues that our kids are facing. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, the, the numbers of uh, anxiety and depression in, uh, in high school uh, age kids and younger kids as well re really increase. And uh, what's thought to be a significant contributor to this is the lack of structured physical activity uh, that, that kids are provided because of uh, limitations of the pandemic. And that's happening you know, across the country, um, there there was an article in the uh, in the Sunday Times uh, this past uh, Sunday. You know, talking about the the prevalence of um, suicide rates uh, amongst high school kids, and uh, I believe they were referencing a story uh, in Nevada where it's uh, just had a tremendous uh, negative impact. So, uh, you know, when you think about what relationship 
um, meaningful relationships do, do, do kids have through their experiences. I think that coach relationship with kids is as strong as any that exists uh, in, in the education setting. Uh, and that goes for, for any extracurricular, not just sports. I think the relationship that kids have with their, their choir uh, instructor or their band leader or their drama, um, you know, coach. Uh, all those relationships, I, I, I really think, have a deep meaning uh, to them, and and we have to engage our kids in that. If we just focus right now on trying to deliver curriculum to kids, uh, we're, we're really missing out on a significant uh, piece of the the health of our students. Absolutely, and, and I'm sure I'm sure during the what's going on with the pandemic i'm sure online learning and remote learning it's not easy no it's it's not easy and you know as we mentioned uh you know p different kids have varying uh access to that as well and um you know it, it's not easy for the kids and uh and you know is is when it's not easy for the kids it's not easy for the teachers as well uh it's certainly not easy for the parents Nope. Again, you think about what parents are juggling right now. You have, you know, some parents that that have to go to work, and and yet you you might have young kids uh, that are in a hybrid learning scenario uh, or a part day learning scenario, and now you're trying to balance and juggle. Uh, you know, how do you how do you pr provide for for your kids at home if you have to be at work? Um, you know, we're seeing uh, childcare facilities maxed out, so you know that might not be available. Uh, as well, or you're in a situation, you know, as a parent that you're working from home and, you know, while, while you're trying to work, you know, you, you have your kids that are trying uh, to work. And if you don't have multiple devices, uh, that's an issue. If you don't have the bandwidth that can, that can, um, you know, handle multiple devices, uh, that's an issue. So uh, there, there are certainly challenges, you know, to this. And again, I think everybody is doing the best they can and making the most of it. Uh, I don't think anybody, you know, uh, last March thought, uh, hey, you know, we better plan to, to be in this for uh, for a year plus, you know, I, I uh, there just wasn't enough, you know, known about it. So, you know, seeing where we are now in, in looking at how Connecticut uh, has handled this, I, I think as a state, we're doing better than most and as, as well as anybody uh, can expect to do at, at this point. And, uh, you know, we've had good leadership on the education uh, piece of that to help get us where we are today. Glenn, would you mind sticking around for another segment? Absolutely. All right, we'll be right back. I'm here to talk about how we're going to defeat COVID-19. Well, we got to bring our A game. What's our A game? Here's the strategy. Get tested. Stay social distancing. Wear masks. Community Health Center has testing sites all over the Connecticut. Open seven days a week, and they're free for anybody. Babies, students, senior citizens, anybody. So go in and get tested. That's how we can all stay undefeated. Find a location near you at chc1.com. Community TV, your neighborhood TV. Publicly funded and a reliable partner for cable companies nationwide. It provides transparent coverage of local and state government, education, and public programming. A digital town green that can be watched anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Watch us on today's high-tech distribution methods. Community TV in Connecticut. Local. Unfiltered. Reliable. And, and yours. yours. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm Pete Mazzetti sitting here with CIAC Executive Director Glenn Longarini. Glenn, welcome back. 
Thank you, Pete. Thanks, my friend. So, Glenn, we were talking a little bit about in the first half of the show, winter sports and all that other, all that other fun stuff. Now let's transition to spring sports. Yeah, you know, we, we started that transition to spring sports uh, very early. Um, again, when, when we started the process of looking at sports this year, uh, every sport uh, was part of the discussions. Um, you know, some of the, the pieces as we were looking forward to the spring um, that right away caught our eye is, uh, you know, what is labeled as uh, various risk levels in the spring. Uh, and for us, uh, we really only have one sport, that's boys lacrosse. Uh, that's labeled in that high risk category that um, we cover as a CIAC sanctioned sport. Okay. Uh, again, understanding that there are some um, schools, individual schools that do have hockey, uh, not hockey, uh, rugby uh, programs that um, that run in the uh, in the spring, but it's not a, you know, that's not a sanctioned CIEC sport, but that would be considered high risk as well. So a lot of our attention has been focused on um, boys lacrosse right now. Uh, and its classification is high risk in the spring. You think there's going to be a lacrosse season this year? I do. Uh, I think, you know, there, there's two important venues, uh, you know, or avenues that, that, that we have to take for that to happen. Um, you know, first, uh, the, the state DPH in Connecticut has been very consistent with following the NFHS uh, classifications. And, you know, so... Uh, understanding that uh, if a classification is going to change, it's going to need to come from the National Federation level. Uh, so we have taken uh, the steps of asking the NFHS to review and consider reclassifying uh, the sport of boys lacrosse. Uh, you know, with that, we are asking for uh, the details, the, the science and the data behind boys lacrosse and why it's uh, being linked in with sports like uh, football and and wrestling um, again the, those sports football and wrestling you know we, we can understand in that high risk uh, category you know again when we look at uh, what we saw from the um, from the fall seasons uh, for the states that did play also you know uh, here in Connecticut we know that there were some you know independent teams that uh, that played football as well and uh, we did uh, we are aware that uh, transmission did occur uh, in those sports. We know that there were at least two school closures that were directly linked to uh, to transmission in the in the sport of football in Connecticut. We do know from uh, other states that played that there was transmission there. Again, I, th I think everybody took mitigating steps to reduce that as much as possible, but it just showed that you know the high risk categorization is appropriate. Uh, same thing with a sport like wrestling, where you know you can take a lot of mitigating steps, but you can't mitigate that you're going to be face to face and cheek to cheek with your opponent, or um, you know during practice times that you're going to be in in that same close proximity. There are mitigating steps that you can take. You try to uh, put uh, put groups of four together, so uh, you know how you have lower numbers of kids in that uh, contact scenario. You uh, you reduce meets to only dual meets, so you don't have high number uh, of kids having multiple contacts. So again, there's ways that you can mitigate that that we've um, put in place to do. But you know, right now in Connecticut, we don't have that approval for high risk uh, sports to play. So in boys lacrosse, though, uh, we feel that the science shows that the contact time is more uh, related to uh, soccer, boys girls soccer. Um, um, 
field hockey, you know, outdoor fall sports uh, such as that. So uh, that is our petition to the um, NFHS is that they consider that. And if they don't have the science and the data that links it more closely to uh, those sports like rugby, look, um, football, wrestling, that they recategorize it to what we see as a co closer correlation in um, boys, girls soccer uh, and field hockey. So that that's one avenue you know, to go. The other avenue is that uh, the numbers in Connecticut suggest that you can play high risk sports. Right. Uh, if you can play high risk sports, then, you know, again, it's it's mitigating it as much as we can to be able to play. Um, you know, what, while we had conversations with DPH about football, and that's something that, you know, we've certainly heard uh, from the public, you know, kind of kind of questions that, well, if, you know, we were at 1% or less at times in the fall and we couldn't play a high-risk sport then, you know, how are the numbers going to support playing a high-risk sport in the spring? And, um, you know, again, I, I, I never heard DPH say the numbers didn't support it. It was our conversations with DPH and the governor's office were always that uh, there wasn't much known at that point and that um, it was better to proceed with caution. And when we know more about it, then uh, we can make more informed decisions. And so we know more about it and we can make more informed decisions. And that's what we're asking the NFHS for as well. You know, share with us your data. So if we are going to challenge this, we can challenge it from a standpoint of understanding exactly what science uh, the NFHS is using in making their determination. So at the state level, um, you know, our, our DPH, our doctors, uh, can determine whether they agree with what the uh, NFHS is seeing or not. So, you know, both of those I think are um, are avenues that uh, that we are prepared and ready to uh, to explore and go down to uh, to get boys lacrosse up and running, um, and that would get all of our spring sports uh, up and running for uh, really a full spring season, including state championships. Now, as far as spring sports with lacrosse and all the other spring sports, what do you think they're going to look like spectator-wise? Uh, you know, to be determined again, uh, you know, Pete, I think we have to see where we are at that time. Um, you know, I, I uh, again, wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, as we start the year uh, with it, um, you know, again, ju just let's get the kids out there playing. Uh, that, you know, perhaps the, the recommendation stays the same. But when you're in an outdoor venue, um, you know, it, it does uh, alleviate the risk a little bit. Again, something that we don't know right now is a whole lot of information on these new COVID strands, right? So right. you have, uh, you know, new COVID variants that, uh, that um, you know, they're looking at. Um, you know, the, the initial science here seems to suggest that uh, the new strand may be uh, more contagious. Uh, so, you know, you, you have to learn a little bit more about that and uh, the prevalence of that in certain communities before you can make that decision uh, with the spectators. Again, understanding that most of the data that we have and most of the science that we have right now, and that's what we hear from people all the time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, make the decision on the science. Well, most of the science that we have says it is the, the, the um, exposure around the game where the transmission happens so when you're in the stands when you're you know when you're traveling to and from the game that's where we're seeing it so uh to limit that i think optimizes opportunities for kids uh but again i think with outdoor venues uh it does open up uh some greater possibilities that uh, that we can look at in the spring now how do you limit when you're when you're doing a spring sport how do you limit traveling obviously 
How's that going to work? You know, that that's pretty uh, pretty consistent regardless of the season. So if you think back to the fall and, and what's happening in the winter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unlike youth sports where you're carpooling to events, uh, you know, you might have, um, you know, teams making plans to, uh, to you know, to, to stay in hotels or to go for team meals, uh, you know, after um, – you're just not seeing that in high school, right? We have the ability where uh, you're on a bus, you're supervised, we can ensure that uh, that the kids are wearing a mask, that they're spaced out uh, on those buses and, and have some distance um, within our leagues. We're trying to play games as much as we can within close proximity in those leagues. So, um, you know, most of your travel uh, is reduced to maybe a 20 minute ride, 30 minute ride at most. Um, so, you know, we've, we've really cut that uh, down, then, you know, when you leave the bus and you're going home, you're only, you know, going home with people from your own family. Uh, so, so we're able to mitigate that transportation risk pretty significantly in an education-based setting, um, that just isn't as readily, uh, mitigated from a, uh, youth or, uh, club sport level. Now let's talk about the outlook for spring sports in general. How, how's that going to look? Yeah, you know, we're, we're planning right now and really having as much of a full spring as possible. So we're looking at a, um, a March 29th start date. Uh, originally, that was probably going to be mid-April that we were looking at a, at a start date and looking at a June 20th finish. But uh, again, with the recommendation to not have um, high-risk sports until the end of the winter season, which is March 28th, you know, it, it took that alternative season that that we had planned from February 22nd, uh, where we were going to begin football conditioning. Um, March 8th, we were going to begin that alternative season. Uh, April 16th, we were going to end that alternative season. Right. Um, but with with not being able to to have contact, where you're only doing non-contact uh, small group skill building with high risk sports. Uh, it, it really is a limiting factor. Um, and then also right now, the only sport that we had in that alternative season was football. Uh, the National Federation did come out with guidance that suggested if you play a spring football season, you should reduce the number of games that you play next fall. Uh, they also came out and said that uh, you should not have any shortcuts. So if you normally have a three and a half week preseason before your first game, you should maintain that three and a half week preseason in the spring. So, you know, again, if you're not starting something until April 1st, then you need to do three and a half weeks of a preseason before you can even consider playing um, you know, your, your first game, it, it just didn't, uh, does, doesn't make it feasible uh, in a state where we have so many multi-sport athletes um, that you could put those, uh, have those seasons overwrap. Uh, we have, you know, th- I think 37 to 38% of our football players uh, play a spring sport. We have 31% of our wrestlers play a spring sport. We have 27% of our athletes who both wrestle and play football, um, you know, outside of that percentage that, that plays spring sports. So you have such a significant um, uh, percentage of, of overlap that it makes it very difficult in a small state to, uh, to, to do that um, in a spring season. Uh, so, so with all those limitations put into place, the decision was made that um, it, it didn't make sense to hold, to continue 
uh, to hold that alternative season. So with that, the start date for spring sports was um, will be March 29th. We'll end the winter on March 28th, start right away on the 29th. We'll have pitchers and catchers going around March 20th. Uh, and we'd be looking at a, uh, you know, a regular end date of uh, probably June uh, 12th, 13th at uh, Saturday, Sunday uh, for state championships. Um, I think that also, you know, in talking with um, school administrators and boards across the state and superintendents, uh, you know, the the. Uh, in Connecticut, because you're, you're only looking at 177 instructional days this year, because you can use the distance learning days and snow days, you know, pretty much everybody is graduating uh, at their originally scheduled time. So um, most of our schools will be done um, by that, uh, that weekend, that June, uh, June 11th, June 12th, that Friday, Saturday. Uh, will be graduated. So, you know, moving past that, um, you know, there was some flexibility if we had to go a week past that. Um, there, there was more um, concern if we were going into the last week of June. Exactly. And, we, and who, who knows what graduation is going to look like this year? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, again, hopefully the numbers are getting better. You know, you might be limited where, you know, you don't have the entire uh, you know, family there, but, um, you know, we're, we're hopeful that, um, you know, that there's outdoor facilities at, at places that, you know, you can get, um, get at least, uh, you know, mom and dad and some representation of the family there for the kids. Uh, everybody's focused on trying to get the kids as, as many, you know, quote unquote, normal experiences right. as we, uh, as we can. And, um, and, and those are all things that, again, you have to look at as well. And, and how do you, uh, how can you give kids experiences and proms? How can you give kids experiences and graduation? Um, you know, even right now in the winter, we're talking about winter sports, but beyond the sports, you know, in, in music, you're looking at winter percussion and how do you provide uh, those opportunities? Um, a lot of schools at this time would be right in the middle of their rehearsals for their uh, spring uh, uh, drama productions and musicals. And, you know, so you want to try to provide those opportunities as much as you can as well. So as we said earlier, those are the places that that we see the strongest relationships forge in in our schools. So you, we need to be, um, you know, looking at and keep in mind the extracurricular experiences for kids. Now it's CIAC. How many student athletes do you guys have? On a um, yearly basis, it's a little over seventy thousand. We're usually right between seventy and seventy-one thousand. Uh, athletes and so that's um, you know those are athletes that uh, just counting each one once so you know if if Pete if you played um, you know soccer basketball and, and baseball then uh, we would only count you once in that scenario um, the NFHS when they count their numbers they don't delineate out um, those multi-sport athletes so if the if you ask the NFHS that same question, mm -hmm. uh, you know they would tell you that Connecticut has about 130,000 uh, athletes. But uh, but again, that's because we have you know so many, um, you know we we, we have about 50,000 multi-sport athletes in in Connecticut. So um, you know the numbers that that would report out of the NFHS and their annual summary. Uh, is usually much higher than what we report, uh, but that's because we break it down to just uh, counting the, each individual once. Now, as far as district-wise, how many school districts do you guys represent? 
Uh, there's uh, 186 high schools that are uh, that are in the uh, CIAC membership, um, and I want to say, Pete, that comes from I believe it's 169 school districts. Um, going off the top of my head on that one, I'm trying okay. to you know just trying to play in my head, uh, you know how many multi uh multi school districts we have like you know uh waterbury mm -hmm. you know has uh, has multiple schools stanford has multiple uh schools you know Hartford. so just trying to think think that and but i, I want to say there's 168 or 169 school districts okay. in connecticut and 186 member high schools within those districts oh, wow. and one thing we have to mention you were you work probably pretty closely with our mutual friend bob raider from cabe we do. We work uh, quite closely with uh, with Bob, and uh, you know, like everybody else, boards of ed uh, certainly have their hands full right now. Um, you know, not only uh, within their own facilities and, and what they're trying to uh, provide in terms of uh, education experiences for kids, but um, this has really taken a toll uh, on our board's budgets. And, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. I think, uh, you know, people say, well, you know, if the kids aren't in school, you must be saving, you know, saving money. Uh, and, and that's not the case at all. It, it's actually quite the opposite because you're trying to uh, to get the technology for kids that you need. You're trying to provide, you know, for, for teachers the the resources that uh, that they need. And, and this has taken a significant toll on our municipalities and uh, and our school boards, just as any just as it's taken a toll on every business and every industry. Um, it, it's no different when it comes to educational spending. Exactly, exactly. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about spring sports and what people can expect. Uh, yeah, so, you know, again, looking at, um, you know, that, that fairly traditional start. So uh, if we're up and running on uh, March 29th, you're looking at, you know, those first 10 days, two weeks where uh, you have your practice and scrimmage scenarios. Um, and then, you know, mid-April, we'd be uh, starting those first games, uh, you know, somewhere around that, um, you know, April 10th, 11th, 12th date. Uh, start uh, start playing those first games and you, your regular season would go um, right up to the end of May. Uh, and then uh, your state tournament looking from June 1st to uh, June 12th, 13th is would be the time frame for the tournament. So you would um, you would have really a normal spring. You know, you'd have time to play all of your regular season games. Uh, baseball, softball would play, you know, 20 games. Your track meets every Monday, Tuesday, the way that they normally are. Uh, lacrosse would get their 16 games in. Uh, you know, golf would get their, uh, their matches in. Um, and then uh, again, looking at enough time where you could run a, a conference tournament and uh, and then play the state tournament. So all the time frames at the end of the season uh, right now are mapped out to uh, to, to be uh, normal uh, as as they would be. So uh, you know that that's the goal. Um, you know that that's where we'd like to be, and and hopefully uh, the predictions of things improving uh, continue that uh, that that trend and and that positive outlook and and we could see a relatively unaffected spring now how's the how are the tournaments going to look for for spring sports yes same setup is what we're anticipating for the spring right now uh where uh you know you would have your uh your traditional um early rounds and then 
um, you know, as you narrow down, look at uh, possibly some some neutral sites. So that's the one variant that uh, we're not, you know, sure, and we won't know until we get to that point uh, whether it's possible to use uh, neutral sites. It, it may be uh, that the the you know best practice may still be uh, to hold it at the higher seed. So you know where when you normally get to semifinals. Um, you know, where you're playing those at a neutral site, you, you may, we may still play those at a, uh, at the higher seed at that point. Um, if it doesn't make sense to take two teams to a site that otherwise wouldn't have an event going on because of, um, again, COVID numbers and COVID exposure. Uh, but again, you know, with most of our sports, um, you know, the, the contact level is low to moderate. So, um, you know, that, that is something that we're, you know, we're, we're confident about the other sport to really, you know, kind of think about in terms of how we, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, move forward with would be the track championships. Uh, because again, multiple teams coming together right now, we're anticipating that the numbers, you know, and, and where we are with vaccinations because uh, the state is doing such a great job, may support that. Um, but if, if we're not in that place, then, you know, we may have to make some adjustments uh, with that because of the large numbers that would be coming together. But uh, we remain optimistic that uh, we'll be able to provide a fairly normal experience in the spring. Now let's talk about what we, we actually should have started with winter sports first and then moved to spring sports. We talked about spring sports first, but now let's go to winter sports and see what people can expect. Yeah, so, you know, again, we, uh, we're in the middle of our opening up um, where schools can start you know, sooner than uh, January 19th with practice. So we do have some schools underway with their practices right now. Okay. Um, we have a, a number of schools that have decided not to start until February 1st. So some of them are doing some online uh, conditioning right now and will begin getting their teams together February 1st. Okay. Um, we have said teams can start practice uh, games no sooner than February 8th. And, you know, the, the concept within their repeat is having a three week period of time uh, where you're conditioning. So if you started January 19th, you'd have, you know, the week of the 19th, 25th and February 1st before you start playing. Uh, again, that's because the state was really shut down. Uh, from sports from, um, you know, mid-November to January 19th. So when you have that much time off from structured uh, physical activity, you want to make sure that kids are conditioning properly before they get into that uh, high-intensity play. So, you know, teams that come back February 1st, uh, again, anticipating they've had some uh, level of online conditioning, we would require 15 days of um, practice play and conditioning before they enter into their uh, first game. So that's why we uh, play out to March 28th and give all that time for games to take place within conferences. It maximizes the opportunity uh, for teams to play games without the limitation of a hard stop date from a state tournament. Now, as far as for going to sporting events, as far as a team goes, because you're not going to allow spectators, everybody's going to have a mask on at all times. Everybody wears a mask at uh, at all times, Pete, for the uh, for the winter. Uh, that includes participants. The exception to the rule uh, will be swimmers when they're actually in the uh, in the water, and uh, and then gymnasts when they're actually on the apparatus. Uh, so all other uh, athletes uh, will wear um, 
masks at all times, including while participating uh, actively in the competitions. Uh, officials will wear masks, game workers will wear masks, um, you know, uh, um, athletic trainers, coaches, you know, anybody involved in the uh, in the event will have to uh, wear a mask. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good point too when you think about sports like hockey, yeah. Uh, basketball, where you know there, there is um, certainly a cardio component to that as you're running up and down the floor. I mean, if you watch any of our our girls and boys games now, uh, you know it's it's not a half court set in most of these uh, <laughs> nope. for most of these teams. They, they got some kids who can run the floor, and uh, so you know it's a it's a pretty fast paced uh, game, and uh, you know so uh, recognizing that we've instituted what essentially is a TV timeout. Okay. So it's at the four minute mark or the first whistle after the four minute mark uh, in basketball and in hockey, there'll be a one minute stoppage of play uh, to provide a mask break. So, you know, again, it just gives an opportunity where you could safely uh, distance kids. So it's appropriate for them to lower the mask if uh, to get some water, you know, j just take a breather. Um, if their mask is getting sweaty, uh, you know, they can change the mask out at that point. They should have multiple masks with them or, or in their bag so they could change out uh, if they need to. And, and so, uh, you know, in hockey, you'd be looking at the four, eight and 12 minute mark uh, where that would happen. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, again, strategy wise will be something that coaches, you know, can play a little bit too, knowing that you have that timeout coming, you know, at that point, a coach may elect to save a timeout and, yeah. you know, at, at various points of the game. And uh, uh, so, so those are all necessary elements to add in when we introduce the concept of wearing a mask during play. Absolutely. We've got a little bit of time, more time left. So what else do we want to cover that we haven't covered yet? Uh, gee, it's a, it's, it's, it's a good question, Peter. <laughs> trying to think back of, uh, you know, what, what we talked about uh, or what I what I sent you. I think, um, gee, I think we covered quite a bit. Uh, I think we did. Yeah, just looking. Yeah, like I said, I don't even. Uh, I don't see my. Uh, let's see, winter plan. You know, uh, I, I tell you, I think what might be interesting for your your viewers. Um, we get asked quite often, uh, Pete, um, everybody around you is playing high-risk sports. Yeah. Massachusetts is playing. New York just announced they're playing. Uh, you know, New Jersey's playing high-risk. Uh, Illinois, that has played virtually nothing, have just announced that they're playing high-risk. And, you know, so we, we get asked quite, quite frequently, is that something you want to cover? Sure. Okay, so. Yeah, we got about 20 seconds, so. 20 cents. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when we get asked about, uh, you know, high risk sports and, and those that are being played in states around us, the common element to that that we would stress to people is uh, it's been the decision of the governor's office and the state DPH to play those. Uh, when that guidance is given, then it's the responsibility of the state association to try to mis um, mitigate playing those sports. Right now in Connecticut, we have that limitation through the end of the winter season. Uh, and so that that's what we're abiding by. Cool. Glenn Longarini from CIAC, thanks for some time, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Thank you, Pete. Appreciate it. Happy to come back anytime. You got to be well, my friend. On behalf of Glenn Longarini, I'm Pete Mazzetti. Thanks. Good night, and we'll see you next time.